Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast. My name is James and I'm the pastor here at Sar Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. And this is our midweek audio only Bible teaching. We have been walking through God's Word one chapter a week and today we get to Numbers chapter 13. Now, as we say every week, if you've never read this, if you've no idea what Numbers 13 is all about, go ahead and press pause and then read it. We'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in the Word. So last week, Numbers 12 was a very short chapter, and we saw Miriam and Aaron, uh, predominantly, mainly Miriam, complaining against Moses uh, and the consequence for that. And then today, uh, well, sorry, at the end of last week, we said that they're on the threshold of uh, the promised land, and we finished last week by saying that they were camped in the wilderness of Paran, and today we're about a month later, and they're there. They're on the threshold, and they're about to enter, or kind of go and have a look before they enter. So the first thing to say is that if you read, if you've read your Bible before, if you're kind of familiar with these stories, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, uh this kind of, it's not really repeated, but this is talked about again. And the idea to send spies ahead, to send people ahead, doesn't come from uh, God as it does here, as, as it seems to do here. Numbers 13 verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, each one a chief among them. And so we read that first up first glance, and it seems to suggest that this is God's idea to send spies, whereas you read Numbers, and it's very much from the people. And so again, we've come to a place in our Bibles where there there seems to be a contradiction, and people love to jump on this and say, look, see, the Bible contradicts itself, it's all nonsense. But here, that's just not the case. Uh, Knowing that these narratives and these accounts kind of overlap one another and focus on different things. The best solution, the best explanation here, without speaking to Moses and Joshua personally, is that the people have suggested it, and then God has spoken to Moses, not really to commend them to send spies, but to tell them how to do it. So People have come to Moses and said, yeah, we want to send some spies ahead. We want to see what's going on up ahead. Then, Numbers 13, 1, the Lord's put to Moses saying, okay, fine. Send some people out uh, to the land which I'm going to give to the people, which should fill you with huge confidence anyway, regardless of who or what is there. uh, From each tribe, send a man. And so rather than this being a contradiction, it's kind of looking at the same thing from two different angles uh, and two different points in the story. Uh, Very much like we'll finish the chapter by talking about. And so Numbers 13 is mainly broken up into four distinct parts. First comes the the command, the the, the, how are we going to do this? Yep, send some people ahead. Uh, and so verses kind of the two or three, verse three to 16 is a list of the 12 people. Uh, we're getting one from each tribe so that the, the the full community, everybody is represented on this uh, journey to check out the land, to see who is there, to see what is there. And really interesting, at the end of verse 16, we see that Moses is now going to refer to Hosea, the son of Nun, as Joshua, son of Nun, possibly to avoid confusion with this 
with his name Hoshea means salvation uh, in Hebrew, and this community is built on the truth, the experiential truth that God saves and God delivers, Yahweh saves, Yahushea, which is how you'd say uh, Jesus in Hebrew. Um, and so whilst it doesn't tell us chapter verse why he changed his name, it's possible uh, that that was, that was wise to avoid any confusion about who is really responsible for the salvation of these people. And then the next kind of passage, 17 to 20, they are commissioned, these guys are sent out, and we get this list of what they're, uh, they're going to do. Um, stuff like see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. This is a really dangerous commission, uh, not from their physical safety point of view, but if they come back and say, look, this land is full of big, bad soldier type guys the people are going to go there scared if they come back and say look it's it's just filled with uh, small meek weak soft people too polite for their own good they're going to go in there overconfident if they go in come back and and, and the report says you know look this place is uh, rubbish we should look somewhere else they're going to start questioning god's word so really they should have known what the place was going to be like. They were already told that back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Um, the people had already been told in Exodus 13 what it's going to be like. And really, as we kind of referred to in verse 2, you know, send men to spout the land that I'm going to give to the people of Israel. It didn't really matter who was living there. God had said, This land is for you, this land is for my people. I'll take care of whatever's going on there at the moment. You just need to be there and get there and, and take it because I'm going to give it to you. Um, so it's a really dangerous commission from the sense that it has the potential to really unnerve uh, and unsettle uh, the people. And at the end of that passage, verse 20, that's where we get this idea, this truth from that. This is kind of about a month later. Uh, it's the season of the first ripe grapes. And we're tracing the timeline through the book of Numbers. Uh, and we're now around late July. And they'd been in the wilderness. They'd been camped. They'd been kind of ready to go for about a month. And now it is go time, so to speak. The next passage, verse 21 to 24, 25, let's say. Um, they, we get the account of what happened on their scouting mission, let's say. And they're away for about 40 days, reading verse 25. They've done this huge, if you traced it on a map, this huge, around 400-kilometer journey. So they've not been slacking off for a month. And there are lots of little things in here, places, details, that would have been very quickly understood by the people, uh, those who were Israelite by descent, those who lived in this place at this time, that to us might just seem like extra details but um, so let's walk through it and let's see so they go up they spy out the land from the wilderness of zin to rehob near lebo hamath that's verse 21 verse 22 uh, they went up into the negeb and came to hebron this is where abraham and family uh, were buried and no mention is made of this no mention is made of the tombs the graves of abraham sarah isaac rebecca jacob leah but when Israelites in this place at this time heard they went to Hebron, they would have thought, oh, straight away, that's where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, that's where they are buried. So this is the place. This is our, our place, this is our land, but there's no mention of that. We're more concerned, it seems, with the people that are there currently rather than our people um, that are buried there. And uh, we see the descendants of Anak, uh, known in this place at this time to be great big warrior-type people. Uh, and then in brackets in my Bible, it says Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now again, if you read around this, um, Zoan was held up to be the oldest, most beautiful, bestest, most culturally rich, huge heritage place in the region. Uh, and so sticking that in there seems to be quite confrontational to the people that um, actually Hebron is older. Uh, you can boast about the, the historicity, the antiquity of Zoan, but actually Hebron was there before. And uh, then the rest of the passage, what really stands out to me at least, is this: they cut down this single cluster of grapes that had to be carried uh, on a pole between two people, also some pomegranates and figs. And for most of us, having grown up in the 20th century, a single bunch of grapes that weighs 10, 12, 20 kilos that two people need to carry on a pole seems a bit beyond us. But again, if you read around this, if you look into this, um, <laughs> apparently this was a thing. Uh, this, this is not um, just outlandish lies about the size, <laughs> size of the giant fruits. Uh, there was a Bible commentator uh, from a couple of centuries back called Adam Clark, and if you read some stuff that he wrote, he gives historical citations talking about the large size of grapes uh, in this re region, uh, not little tiny things that you can chop up and put in your kids' lunchboxes for school. Uh, and it's hard for us who've grown up predominantly in the 20th century West to wrap our head around pieces of fruit, uh, you know, uh, grapes that are as big as, as mangoes. But uh, again, if you read around this, if you look into this, it, it's a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing. And then the spies kind of report back then for the rest of the passage. After 40 days, they come back and they go to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. And uh, they bring back word. They tell the people all about where they've been, what they've seen. And they bring some of the fruit. Uh, and they say, look, this place is legitimately as good as we have been told. It is flowing with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Uh, we talked a couple of times in a couple of chapters about this idea, milk and honey. It's not literal. It's not some sticky, wet mess. It's just a way of saying uh, that the land is going to produce all you need to live from, to live on. Uh, to The land is going to be very, very sustaining for you. Uh, proof, look, here is a bunch of big, beautiful fruit. Uh, that we've brought back for you. And then verse 28 begins, however, and it's hard to really convey the strength of that term in the original language. It's not something that, we, you know, we throw that word however around quite freely nowadays, but the land is great milk and honey, beautiful big fruit. However, it's huge, strong contrast. And then they bring forth uh, a lot of reasons why they probably 
reading between the lines, don't want to try and take the land. The people there are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Uh, this idea comes up in uh, Kings and Chronicles of cities that were uh, thought to be impregnable. Uh, we saw the descendants of Anak that develops later in this passage. And they get carried away with themselves. And they, everybody is like this. We saw some descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land. Uh, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So there's this huge list of obstacles, of problems, of, of peoples, of uh, you know, just problems of why we feel like this is going to be really, really difficult. And then Caleb stands up, which takes huge bravery in front of a bunch of people set on one course of action, for you to stand up and be in contradiction to that takes huge bravery. Think about Neville Longbottom in Harry Potter, uh, if you're a Harry Potter kind of person. He stands up and calls out people on their poor behavior when everybody else is in cahoots. Caleb stands up here. The original Neville Longbottom says, let's go and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He's the only person that seems to be acting on God's promise. God has said he's going to give the people this land. God has said it's going to be great. They've seen that it's great. They've gone back, they've reported, and they've listed all these reasons why we shouldn't go and do it, why we might not be able to do it. Caleb stands up and says, no, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him, the rest of them, the other 11, were not able to do it. They're stronger than us. And then they kind of just, it looks like, get very carried away with themselves and get just very hyperbolic, lots of exaggerating. The land uh, is going to dev devours us. The people, they're all of great height. All the people, not just a couple that we saw in the previous passage. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. Uh, people think that Goliath was a, a descendant, unusually large. Uh, we seem like grasshoppers to ourselves and so to them. This is just getting worse and worse and worse. They're just building on a negative report. And it's now just this outlandish, oh, everybody's massive. The land is going to swallow us up and we're just like grasshoppers. And so I think for you and for me here, it's interesting to read through these things. Uh, it's great to have a knowledge of Scripture. But very, very practically here, I think what we can take away from Numbers 13 is something that F.B. Meyer said, that instead of looking at the opportunity, instead of looking at the promises of God, the people are now comparing themselves to the problems. And compared to the problems, they feel small, they feel inadequate, and they feel destined to fail. Um, and we can understand, if that's how it's framed, why they don't want to move forward in this. They feel like they can't move forward in this. When we focus on our problems and compare ourselves to the problem, we might well feel like second best we might feel like this problem is insurmountable but how they should have been framing it is the problems in relation to God because when you put their problems up against an eternal almighty 
sovereign God, all-knowing, all-powerful God, the problems of, well, there are some people living in this land. Some of them are a bit taller than us. Some of them have got a higher degree of military training than us. That doesn't seem like such a big deal compared to an all-knowing, all-powerful creator, sovereign God. And that's the same for us. When we compare ourselves to our problems, we're going to feel, or very possible for us to feel, second best. These problems are huge, insurmountable, can't see a way past them, through them, around them. But when we compare the problems to God, then all of a sudden the problems shrink in their size. We know that God is bigger, greater, more powerful, a much bigger deal than the problems that we might face. And I think about Second Corinthians. We've been working through Second Corinthians on a Friday morning at church. And uh, a couple of weeks ago now, this is pretty much, uh, this was pretty much the main, the main point of, uh, of the message. That how we frame things, our perspective on our problems, uh, impacts hugely uh, on how we approach them, uh, whether we're looking at the problems or we're looking past them to God, whether we're looking at everything that's here in front of us now or whether we're looking at an eternal God. Uh, how we frame things is really, really important. And it seems like here, Caleb has framed things properly. He's seen some of the issues that lie in front of him, but he's also remembered the big promises of a big, powerful, loyal, true-to-his-word God who said he's going to give them this land. And it seems like the other 11 are focused entirely on the problems in front of them and you can see how that plays out with how they want to proceed i think the same is absolutely true for me and for you next week we will get into numbers chapter 14 we see again the people are going to complain and rebel and push back on how things are but until then god bless you